Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to meet God? Welcome to episode number 48. Today, I'm talking to John Scott. John was an atheist his entire life, never believed in any higher power of any form, until a fateful day in his late 20s when everything changed. He calls it a near-death experience, or NDE. He was in the wilderness, and he was accustomed to picking mushrooms. And one day he picked the wrong mushroom, a poisonous mushroom, if you will. And that sent him into an unbelievable journey that absolutely changed his life. He details it in a book available on Amazon called God's Mountain. And it's full of all kinds of details and information that he claims he was given by an incredible deity, a source, God. He was spoken to and given information about the history of the world. So hold on to your seat because we're about to go on a journey with John Scott. Welcome to the Peace Pod, John. It's a pleasure to have you. Take me to your late 20s. Take me into that wilderness. Take me into your mindset. I'd been introduced to a new species by a Frenchman, and it was called um, the saffron cap. And why this, that mushroom is unique is because they're orange on top and uh, white gills underneath. And traditionally, Kevin, anything with white gills underneath, you keep away from, mm. right? So that's, that's the primary visual indicator. Any mycelium expert, you know, can go further, but I'm not a mycelium expert. Mm. So and there's other spore print tests you can do too. Like I don't go around spore printing mushrooms for the hell of it. That's not my, that's not my trip. Um, but I misidentified. I, I went camping and at the time I would just left the Navy. So I was full on into art. Uh, I had a flatmate. Uh, his name's Glenn, an Irishman. And we used to go uh, up to the Blue Mountains, which was west of Sydney. <clears throat> it's very picturesque. And it's phenomenal. It's like one of the seven, I wouldn't have spoken, the eighth wonder of the world. I mean, it's just a beautiful area, untouched wilderness. And we would track up there. I was extremely fit. One particular time, um, I saw these orange saffron caps. And I thought, hang on, there's a whole stack there, you know. But what I didn't realize, I only knew that, found out later, is that they were aging uh, Amanita muscaria. You know, they were sort of, they'd already grown to full bloom and they were flattened out, they were quite large. And of course, with Amanita muscaria, they've got a particular identifier, the classic red mushroom with the white puffy, you know, nodules on the top, which is part of the broken veil of the stem. And they've got white gills, they've got a white stem. So I thought, hang on, these, you know, and I, I didn't even connect the dots that, you know, all of the, the white broken veil bits on the top, the spotted bits had washed off because they were old, they were starting to age and they do fade to orange sometimes. 
Now, with the Amanita species, I found out there's quite a few others that are deadly and they'll kill you. And I didn't find that out till later, but I ended up chucking these mushrooms in and cooking them up. And they were near the, they were near the campsite. And of course, Uh-oh. In, in hot, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. How old are you when this was, when this? Oh, that was, I was about 29, 29. So I was, okay. you know, it was strong, I was fit, but I hadn't had any, you know, pot or anything like that since I was a teenager. So this is like a good 10 years, maybe more. But I'm glad I did because I recognized that I was expanding and I thought, holy crap, I'm this, I'm starting, where did, where did this come from? You know, I hadn't clicked. It was the mushrooms that I'd added. I had no idea. And I was really starting to expand uh, at my campfire. I thought, man, I'm really, I, I'm expanding here. I started to panic a bit, you know, but I thought, hang on, so I'm going to write this out. So did you you go into like a, a psychedelic type of experience? No, no, it wasn't psychedelic at all. It was much more um, focused than that because I'd had LSD and I mentioned this in my book as a kid, someone put some LSD in some stuff that I had and that was a horrible experience for me. That was really hallucinogenic and too powerful. Right. Whereas with the mushrooms, it seemed to assuage the fear. It, it, there was no hallucinogenic strobing or other effects this was completely different it was like i was um just expanding in this bubble but fully aware of my expansion so i'm stepping back from my mind watching my mind go out like watching the ship go off into the horizon but i was on the ship as well and i thought oh this is something totally unique i've never experienced this before but it wasn't scary you became the watcher yeah the watch became the watcher and vice versa so i Mm -hmm. thought Okay. So I'd realized I had something. I still hadn't clicked. It was the mushroom. And, uh, and um, I thought I better, before I get too whacked here, and I was like looking at the stars and they were really, it was a classic quantum non-local moment where I thought, you know, I, I was like, I am the stars and they're so close. I thought, this is insane. And then I could hear crickets and I thought, I am the crickets, you know, like, and I thought, I can feel them. You know, and I could see my legs moving, and I thought, "Why are my legs moving?" And they were vibrating, and you know, as we know, crickets vibrate their legs. So it was very, very quick, very fast, and all of these signals coming in. So I said, "Oh, look, you know, I, I, I'm out of it here. This is really flashing. Am I going to die?" But I basically just hopped in my tent, Kevin, and kept expanding. And I went through nature. And when I say I went through nature, I literally became everything I looked at. Now, one of the saving attributes, uh, I think, was my, uh, my job skills, my skill set, because I used to be an airbrush illustrator and I used to cut stencils out with a scalpel. And of course, what I realized later is this was one, one pointed meditation. I was focusing on doing these stencils and I did millions of hours of this. You know, I had a 10 year window where I was working with advertising and I would, had this incredible focus because my job entailed it. And so that enabled me to actually focus in on what the hell I was looking at. Right. Step back, watcher watched, you know, again. And I thought, I can control this. This, has, this hasn't got control of me uh, without being too controlling, if that makes sense. Yeah, I thought, I can actually hold this vision. So I was actually able to stabilize every part of it. And I was seeing weird stuff like, it was nighttime, right? But I was seeing the earth swell and move. And then I was seeing how there was differential movement 
of this energy moving around the planet. And I thought, I'm looking at a whole year of movement. So I thought, what's this differential movement of the planet's crust? What's it doing? Where's that coming from? So of course, you start to see the variables start to expand. And what I was seeing with a magnetic pull of the moon pulling on things and the sun pulling on it. And I thought, this is moving. It's like, this is a liquid. We've got a ball of liquid we're sitting on here. And then I could go into the earth and see this magnetic connection, you know, the iron core. And then I thought, boom, connected to sun, connected to planets. It's all magnetism, mm. right? It's all geomagnetic energies working here. And I thought, far out, this is insane. Then the trees, uh, I thought I could see light and toroidal spirals coming out, like toroidal fields connecting to trees and all life. The Taurus field? Yes, which is a very big one that seems to be happening in quantum mechanics at the moment. Yes, I, I, so had, I, I had um, Santos Bonacci on this podcast. And he, he... Right, okay. Yeah, I know Santos. I've met him. I've actually met him. So I've, I bought yeah. his CD. Hi, Santos. Hope you were. Uh, I'm still playing him. <laughs> he's a bit of a wild boy, Santos, but, but he's yeah. got some good information. He's got some very good information. And um, it, it almost sounds more like a self realization, enlightenment experience than a near death experience. Well, it, that's right. And so, again, I didn't know what a near death experience was. And this was only the initial phase, right? So, and I realized I was being primed for something much greater further on into this. So I end up, uh, I saw all the nature, the connection to nature. I saw the molecular biological structure of matter. There's no such thing as matter. I started to break down into what I saw was the quantum field. And I've noticed, like I've have looked at a few of Joe, Joe Rogan podcasts and a few other people who've had psilocybin, for example. Mm -hmm. And I, I made a connection. And like I said, I've studied metaphysics. I've spent 20 years studying metaphysics and the subtle body system, which is really important to understand that aspect in terms of human consciousness. Now, metaphysics have been studied by, by the Jewish people prior to us, prior to Christianity, and it keeps going back through... Kabbalah. Yeah, Kabbalah. And it just keeps going back through time to you know Egypt and early Atlantis, Lemuria, Mu, all of these supposed mythological landscapes my point being is i you know once i put all of these jigsaw pieces together and i was seeing this what i, I knew I, I knew it was the quantum field after afterwards when i read about the quantum field because it's geometric and i thought everything has this geometry in it so when say for example joe rogan was interviewing mike tyson in a podcast yeah the toad poison and i thought wow and mikey said something really interesting and he said look it really changed his ego and it changed the fundamental essence of who mike used to be and that's the power of these earth sacraments yes you know i i grew up a sports fan mike tyson's completely different he's way different i mean I, different. I i mean he's a guy who used to pound faces into the mat and then he doesn't want to even know that person anymore he doesn't want to know himself how right. he used to be he's had a major transformation and i get that and i'm sure joe has and many other people who've done these and had these enlightening experiences so to paraphrase or bookend to where you said you know was it an nde and this people do question me about this and i said no not at this phase it's only an obe at this phase out of body and you're traveling through you know what i would term just under the surface of five sense perception now, when I had reached out to the stars and gone through all of this earth stuff and I saw the planet swell and interconnection of 
you know, geometry. And I thought, oh my God, I was in the celestial body. And that's where a lot of people on psilocybin hit. They have this 10 minute hit on psilocybin and they see these crystalline waves and everything and crystalline structures. Now I've heard Cliff High talk about that. He's another well-known person who's been into this, um, you know, this side of uh, consciousness. Jeremy Narby's another one. Um, Graham Hancock supposedly has had a few experiences on ayahuasca, which I could go off on a tangent and break each one down because each one has an individual spirit, a mythology, a cultural connection, a shamanic root, an oral tradition that goes back to the beginning of time, and they all differ. So the one I had, and I don't know anyone who's had an NDE on Amanita muscaria, but it has a specific signature a specific energy, a specific cultural paradigm that is all connected within that mushroom. Hence why I wrote my book. It took me a long time to piece this together. I was still getting visions post-NDE. So when I'd expanded out through this initial phase, I ended up, I blacked out. Then when I hit the blackout phase, I was still conscious, Kevin, but it, it was just sheer black. I retrofitted that to what they call the void Mm. that's where a space where there's no energetic imprint there's no pull push there's nothing you're just there in this black void and it was the first time i was actually scared because i couldn't visually link to anything there was nothing to for my consciousness to grasp onto to say oh that is x or y or z darkness so i've gone where am i darkness complete darkness but but then i realized there was a presence near me a spiritual presence of something and remember i didn't believe in this stuff right so i never saw it i tried to look at it you know in my mind so i couldn't see it but i felt comfortable with it it was masculine and uh, at, then, at, the, at this time are you bodiless like you can't see your hand oh no i can't see anything i mean i'm off in this just this black void i'm just this ball of consciousness yeah it's just this, straight it's awareness 360 degree well i tried to see what this entity was with me and it wasn't malevolent it was definitely benevolent and it was loving but it didn't like amplify love into me this came much later everything had love in it the whole time but this is when it got really powerful i saw a gate and i thought oh what's that and i could see it but i'll never actually draw it or paint it because i think it's too sacred Hmm. and i thought what is this but i knew it was an entrance to something to go somewhere so I, I said, this is it. Okay, well, I'm going to go. And I, and I said, oh, what the hell? I remember saying it to, you know, in my own mind. What the hell? Boom, off I went. As soon as I got through that gate, it was like this river of love. And it was magnetic. And I thought, oh, my God, I know this place. It was instant recognition. Mm. And I, I attributed that to the silver cord that they talk about. But yeah. I was traveling inside the silver cord back home everyone has one of these silver cords mm-hmm. they're permanently connected they're like it's like string theory every mm-hmm. one of us is an individual crystal and we have these strings passing through us and then we have a periodic punctuated uh, sections of consciousness and we have periodic sections in crystallography and, and you get into this you know the light mechanics of quantum and I, i've studied a little bit of that which took me into the realms of, say, uh, Islamic architecture, Iranian mosques and things like that, the Giri tiles, da, da, da. I mentioned that in my book. Right. So once that gets back to the celestial body again, and I, I 
openly question and say, where the hell did they go? those guys get those visions? Were they on visionary substances back then without the cultural, you know, suppression that we have today through authoritative figures? They wouldn't have had that kind of thing back then. You know, they would have been in caves, you know, experimenting with these, you know, substances. I, I, I'm only speculating here because when you start to go historically and start looking, you do find loose ends of, you know, mushroom temples and mushroom buildings in, in, in Turkey little cities of mushrooms made out of the rock. So there's obviously, there's all of these leftover remnants of this mushroom cosmology. And I'm sure Michael Stamets, if he ever gets to see this podcast, he would agree with me and this is, would be in his area. Mm. Um, and many people are asking, well, what is this bloody connection to fungi? What is this real connection to who we are? You know, I'm talking internally, externally, historically, metaphysically, cosmologically. We don't know who we are. So I was starting to understand who I was just after this experience. Anyway. That's why they, call it, that's why they call it self-realization. Correct. So I get to this light, this massive light at the end of this, what I perceive to be a, a tunnel going somewhere. Mm. And there's this, just this freaking light and it's just full on love. I mean, you cannot, you can't, I get upset because it's so emotional. You can't put it into words. Mm. It knows you. It knows you back to front, back to front. You, you can't hide everything that you've ever, ever done in your life. It's instantly known without saying it. And I didn't have a concept of God. And I'm just there in awe, staring, and I'm trying to look into it. You can't look into it. Well, you can, but you can't see any discernible, um, again, it's light, not like the dark void before, but this is the opposite. This is pure light. And it's consciousness and it knows you. And what I was getting was I broke down the telepathic. There's like a form of osmosis, like a knowing, like, you know, the sun's out, you know, it's daytime. You don't have to cognitively say it. It's like that. And here I am thinking, I've been here millions of times before, millions. That was what popped into my head. You're back. Millions. And this is home. I thought, far out. This is like, what the hell is this? And I've still got no concept that I've had an ND. <laughs> I didn't know it was God. And I'm thinking, no, this thing knows more than me. <laughs> it's just a knowing, you know it. So I said, am I dead? And, and it started to talk to me. I, I think the first one, um, I said, um, where, are, where are you? And they said, I think the first thing, well, it, gave, it introduced me with two names, which I won't mention. And then I felt I was slipping and it told me its name was Tem. And I thought, oh, okay, Tem. Because I tried to fight it consciously back to that first name. And they, said, and they pushed me back gently to this Tem. And this took me years to discern what was going on here, Kevin, because when you're dealing directly with telepathic downloads, uh, I, I'm, in, I'm facing God here. I'm facing, you know, this entity mm. that we all read in a book. And we say, you know, some people intellectualize it, they argue about it. But here I am standing in front of this phenomenal force. Mm. I had no background in religion. I had no concepts. I had no ideas about who, what, where, gender, I, none of it. I had no concepts of reincarnation or the cosmogony. I had no concepts of anything. I'm this atheist kid who's had this experience, pure epiphany, unbiased, 
I got no dogma, none. So I, I can't say, hey, I saw Jesus. I didn't see Jesus. I didn't see a man with a beard. I didn't see Muhammad or whatever. I just saw this pure light. But I knew it was so pervasively knowing. And, and I felt like it, I knew straight away. This is all the knowing part, aspect of confronting this that it knew everything. It was like a baby, but it was like the oldest entity ever. Both of those conundrums, it was a conundrum of both of those paradoxes melded into one. Mm. And so just that alone opened up a whole philosophical treatise in me later to try to explain, you know, this is about, well, who is God? What is God? What started it? Where did this all begin? Is there something outside of this light? Because I tried to look through it. No, there's nothing outside of it. There's nothing beyond it. That is the end result, but it's also the beginning. It's beginning and end. It's everything. And it's like, how did this start? I mean, it, I'm still asking questions 30 years later. Hmm. How did it start? Where did the first one start? How did it become self-aware? How did it manifest into humans and entities? And, and so I thought, Okay, I've got something big here, right? It knows me. So I'm going to start asking questions. So I became the watcher. Oh, this is really weird, but I'm still in a subjective John, okay? I'm still John. And I said to it, I said, well, no one's going to believe me. That's what I said. I remember it like <laughs> yesterday. That no one's going to believe me. I said, and I and I'd already asked, where are you? And they said, well, we are here. You know, we are everywhere, they said. We. They used the word we. Mm. I thought, they said, we are everywhere. I said, but I don't, un I don't, and they knew I didn't understand. Like, it was like a microsecond. It's quicker. It's instant. So they hit me with this merge. You instantly, it's like I became the whole everything. And it's like, this is, that's the ineffable. I thought this is beyond comprehension. You can only experience it, but you cannot verbalize it. No, no, it's it's one plus one equals three. Yeah, on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so I'm thinking, okay. So I said, look, I my head started to swell with questions, and I said, am I dead? You know, or am I sick? And I got no answer. I said, and so I thought, okay, think quick, John. So the first thing I asked was, what were the pyramids used for? Because I thought, well, there's a mystery. So what happened is they give me this answer. And they said, well, people used to communicate with entities all throughout the universe. I thought, entities, ETs. I thought, entities, because they used the word entities. Mm -hmm. So then I get this uh, uh, telepathic vista, and it started off slowly at first, and I understood what was going on. They took me to the time when this was all set up. But they took me back further because, yes, that was when we had a high civilization. And, and a lot of Masons are excited about Egypt, a lot yeah. of secret societies. I mean, we all know this. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them still practice, you know, the what I would call the watered down death rites. And here I am having the death rite. I thought, oh, my God, I've seen instantly what's gone wrong with the loss of the death rites. We became disconnected from the one, you know, and the one is you know, back then, structurally and hierarchically, religion was set up in, in a pyramid system with a pharaoh at the top. But that pharaoh was all power and no power. They had no power. They were merely a communicative device. So they were a hollow bone, and they were perfectly in tune with nature. And I'm going back not just 6,000 years. 
I'm going back 400,000 years. That's how old that Great Pyramid is. And that's why I originally, that's why I called my book God's Mountain, because it was the original God's Mountain. Mm. So, and we hear stories. I mean, there's still residual stories about thunder and lightning coming from the top of the mountain. Well, even technically, and I've exposed what the Great Pyramid is in my book, technically, the pyrotechnics coming off from storms hitting the capstone of that pyramid whilst it was functioning would have been phenomenal. You know, like a Leyden's jar, you would have had, you know, like a Tesla ball, you would have had these lightning ionizing the atmosphere above, and then boom, these storms would come in. And of course, the thunderous mountain, you know, you're talking about a piece of technology here, so advanced. It told me what it was, I asked, and it told me. And uh, they mentioned the word particle accelerator. I had no science background. Thinking, what the hell is a particle accelerator? I'm thinking. So, but they let that loose end for me then to go and research. And of course, you know, 10 years after my experience, uh, I'm looking up particle accelerators and uh, donut, donut plasma, you know, fields and atoms being blown at the speed of light. And I mean, it's really technical stuff. And then they built CERN in Switzerland. So I went right down that path of, of looking at collisions and colliders and fusion and vision, and I had to learn a bit of basic physics off, off my own back. Mm. But metaphysics is the same internally as the physicists are looking externally, and we've kind of reached this uh, impasse where physicists have found the Boson-Higgs field. What they've found is the barrier, the light barrier. That's what they've found. Uh, they've actually found the edge of our light barrier. And I don't know if I explained that well enough in my book, but this is incredible because it's like they know it's there. They've seen it. They've seen the effects of the boson you know, particles. But it's a field. It's much like an electron field that surrounds an atom. It's there and it's got this discernible shape. But breaching that field, the only way you can breach that field is through a near-death experience in metaphysics. Or externally, you hop in an ET craft and you fly faster than the speed of light. So external, internal, they merge, they marry. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. How long did this experience yeah. last? The clock time, Mi- would you say? Millions of years in my head, mere days in, in real life. So I wake up dehydrated and I've gone, holy crap, I've spoken with something here and I didn't still hadn't didn't know what the term near-death experience was because that that wasn't in my field of interest so of course i rock back to my local village manly and i'm saying i've spoken with the light i've spoken with this thing called tam i'm like rabbiting on like an idiot (laughs) trying to trying to right you know like the madman in the wilderness just running around people say john you've lost the plot what's going on with johnny he's lost the plot now there's some things I can talk about and some I can't because they're too personal, but during the experience, something major happened. And of course, my consciousness changed then. And within seven years, I'd say post-NDE, so I'm getting into mid-90s, 95, 96, um, I started getting hit with visions. And mm. my it all started coming flooding back, but it got worse in 2012 for some reason. I was working with crop circles and um, or some, some very interesting information. And I'd been told that there were entities throughout the universe. Deity told me this. So personally, yes, we have, there's millions of ETs out there. What 
I hadn't realized, but what had been shown to me in the near-death experience, because you've got to remember when they're pumping this telepathically directly into your soul and you can't cope with all that information. It's like just getting, you know, like rammed down your throat and you're gagging on it. That's what was happening with me. So there was this slow release. So I was in an altered state for 20 years. I was in an altered state and I'm just getting download after download after download after download. And I was writing them down. But, and I wanted to put it sort of in a book format back then, but I, I'm not an author and I didn't consider myself a writer. But the downloads were coming so fast and strong that um, I didn't have time to actually collate. I was just writing it like a diary. And these were big realizations. Sometimes there were visions about the future. Sometimes there were realizations about interconnection of philology and language. Uh, Sumerian, Akkadian, I was going back through language groups and just, just getting these amazing downloads. And so I tried to contact um, especially rabbis, a couple of rabbis, because I grabbed the Bible by this stage and I'm starting to read that because mm. synchronicity. Right. You know, and I was much more logical than that. You know, I, I had a very logical application. I was a businessman. I was, you know. Right. So I started reading the Bible and I ended up in the end, and I'm pretty fastidious when it comes to study. I had something like eight or nine Bibles, and I'm doing transliterations, and already I'm picking up problems with translations in differing um, books. So I thought, hang on, I need to get to the root source of um, papers, you know, original documents, impossible. You don't get, you don't get, original scrolls unless you're a dead sea scroll scholar or something like that right right so this is the technical problem of getting truthful historical information is if that information is held in secure hands then you know and so traditionally i'd learned also that that, that say for example moses and jesus and all the the and, and muhammad and all of the the old patriarchs in our old in our old books they used to disseminate this kind of information orally. This is why oral speaking tradition, master-student relationship is so important. And once that got fractured and broken through priesthoods, et cetera, and wars and whatever, all of those severances of Gnosticism were broken. And this is where, you know, possibly shamans came into play and they would, you know, get these epiphanies and then they would share and they get direct source from light. So I, don't know how far I can go with this because I mean it sounds I've hit a few subjects already and I'm just rabbiting on with so many subjects well it sounds like you have this amazing experience that puts you into a seeker's stage you start seeking you, you start studying you start connecting tons of dots yes and then you're getting visions and downloads and you you 20 25 years of just like this culmination, this, this. Yeah. It was like having a professor putting you through a PhD. You know, you've got your, what do you call it? Your advisor, your supervisor. And that supervisor has got all the knowledge that you need. Like he's the supervisor of the, of the university. That's like my, my supervisor was the light. And I realized that I wasn't going to get led astray here. It was, you know, upstairs was really giving me the, the bee's knees, that book, not that one, this, you know, that, go and study that. So I was getting a really solid grounding on, you know, how science works. I mean, I've got friends who are professors of molecular biology and, you know, people in other fields. And we talk intimately about how science is structured. And of course, there's ego involved and the grant system and who funds it. Uh, who gets the funding, who gets peer-reviewed papers, 
you know, what gets considered, you know, uh, um, you know, peer reviewed and accepted as true science, but it's still not a perfect science. Do you think that Tim, Tim was the name, right? Tim. Yes, T-E-M. Tem, okay, T-E-M. Do you think that Tem, which is the name they gave you, do you think that was the God or well, but okay, that's a, good a question. God? No, no, it was the God, but due to the structure of the universe, um, you have to see where we are in, this, in the bigger picture. We are primates. We were genetically engineered from ET, so we still have half those four circuits. Anunnaki? Uh, Anunnaki, that's a word play. It's Anunkahe, or just Ankh for short. Mm. So the Anunnaki was attributed to the Sumerian you know, gods. And when I, I tried to talk to Michael Tellinger, uh, he, that's, a lot of people are into the Sumerian um, history, and they talk of the Sumerian kingship going back 230,000 years. I mean, and this is all, you know, this is all standard in the, in the texts of the Sumerian tablets and stuff. A lot of people don't attribute that Egypt also has a mythology of kings. And uh, it has a massive mythology of a timeline here. And, they, and it goes back hundreds of thousands of years like Sumeria. So these two cultures are pretty much, you know, you've got the Sumerian base and then they've got Egypt. And I was shown that Egypt back then where the pyramid was, was lush rainforest. So the demograph and geology was completely different to what it is now. It's a desert now. But back then it was lush and we had salt water. And I explained this in my book, how the water level came up to the doorway of the Great Pyramid, which is 17.5 meters. So to answer your question, I will come back to Anunnaki. This, this is why I wrote the book, because the original schism the original split at the highest level of the priesthood, which is the still, it's the narrative of the fallen archangel Lucifer. It's still in the Bible today of, you know, the sons of men came into the daughters of women and you've got to sort of splice together these little anecdotal bits of scripture, but you've got to splice it into what was actually going on back then. What was the hierarchical structure? What was the social structure of the priesthood? Who controlled, you know, the world, the known world back then. And it was a very, very high civilization. Trust me. I mean, as I said, you get a great pyramid that's a particle accelerator. You're talking about advanced machinery yeah. that we've only just built 400,000 years later. Who helped us build that? Who mapped it? Who made yeah. it? Who, you yeah. know, there's a lot of questions. Sure. So, so the Anunnaki, or Anunnaki, as some people call them, Anu, Anu, is an anagram of Nuah, which is Noah. So, Ark, you know, you even get Enki, Enki, it's like you've got to know your deities. You've got to go back and break these words down. En Enki, Enki and Enlil, right? That's right. So you've got to go back to the original language. And of course, it's frustrating if you're not a philologist or you're, you're not an etymologist. So I was getting this stuff in, in downloads, in, in um, direct downloads from space. So what does that mean? What's Chomish? What's this? What's that? And of course, it's, and, they, and I'd get succinct telepathic prompts and they'd say, look up Hebrew, like just Hebrew, remove the vowels. And then I'd search that and I think, ah, boom, got it. Okay. So I'd go back to the, the original deities and get it that way. So I, and I've got like loose threads that have remained in religion, but they don't know the origin of it, if that makes sense. So once you get the name 
of something, you can take it back to the origin of what that deity was. And most of these deities are in your consciousness. They're all aspects of your subconscious mind or, or aspects of your emotional, mental, spiritual bodies. There's nothing outside of you. And this is when we start to get into philosophical rants about, well, we are God as opposed to a God being external and separate as a dualistic entity. Are these, I was looking at God as a dualistic entity. That's why I asked it, where are you? Separate. And they said, we are everywhere. Incorporative. Makes me part of it. Makes you part of it. So you see the dialogue straight away is completely uh, oxymoronic when you come from a, a dualistic concept. And when we work with linear time, we have linear constructs of knowledge. No, when you get this holographic dump, it's like, how do I put that into a, a mindset that's stuck in linear, horizontal, when mine was vertical and holographic? It's all of it. That's complex because it, it does things to the chemistry in your mind you start to think differently. So my biggest problem was actually, as I took down the notes of my downloads, was actually trying to put these into a, a framework, an etymological linguistic framework that people could understand. Because we are empirical, we like to mount information one on top of the other in a slow stepping process in an augmented way, if that makes sense. This is what PhDs do. They jump off the masters of, you know, get on the shoulders of masters and they move forward. That's how knowledge moves forward. Right. But when you're dealing with this kind of consciousness, it's like, wow, you're getting stuff PhDs would die for. You get the epiphany, you're getting the answer, but then you've got to reverse engineer the answer. That's right. What you described standing in front of Tem and God and, and talking and, and being in this environment where it's just all love and all glowing this was described um by paul twitchell who's paul twitch i don't know paul twitchell sorry he has a famous book called the tiger's fang okay i've never heard of it okay oh you're gonna love it <laughs> and he basically he started soul traveling as a kid right and then spirit would come to him and take him on journeys and so he went through i want to say seven but it could be 12 planes okay and what you describe is similar to one of the chapters in that book when he's talking to okay because each plane according to him has yes. a god a figurehead a governor that's that's a good point and no no you're correct and i think in ancient uh judaism for example which i i love the esoteric Ju judaic material mm -hmm. because i think we're the problem is we're so fractured into beliefs with three great religions right I, i'd really like to see an interfaith dialogue but on a mystical level i want to see sufis get in with zadokim and you know get in with mystical christian you know scholars or just mystical christians not necessarily scholars but those who do know their scriptures and they can have the the intellectuals who know the scriptures they can say what's that scripture and then boom because the mystic uh can gnostically paraphrase this stuff when you get into these inner circles of mysticism um it's it is an exact science but it's not as exact as we would like it because the experience as you said, you mentioned this other author. We've had a similar experience, obviously, 
it would be great to get us sitting together talking about these these levels and planes because i i paraphrase them as the seven subtle body system which connect to the seven chakras which the seven chakras are really your menorah right. candlestick in the inner right. inner court of the tabernacle so all of those symbols all the symbols that you get in the tabernacle which is a very good uh, uh map of human consciousness you've got the outer court inner court and holy of holies and of course only the high priest could go into the holy of holies and do the the um the complete ablution of ego or abolition of ego get rid of the ego and he would talk to god directly on yom kippur or the holiest day you know mm. and this was of course the ultimate blessing to get rain to come down fertility for crops and for the stability of society and the community and blessings from god so this is why rain was always connected with blessings this goes back to Egypt too, with the flooding of the Nile and the fertility of the Nile and the crops. And, you know, so it was all connected to crop growth and just balance of, of uh, natural forces, the natural world. And somewhere there's been a severance and they've tried to paraphrase that as paganism, that you're worshiping the earth. And, you know, maybe we can go back to the garden of Eden when we fall out that man's punishment is to till the earth. So anybody who was connected to the earth was in a punished uh, or in a sinful fallen state. Hence the Vatican would interpret that as, well, they must be saved and lift up, lifted up, get them away. Those earth tribes, get them away from swanning around in the dirt and, you know, doing all those pagan ceremonies. No, they weren't really pagan ceremonies because I've done a bit of research. I've met elders here and I've visited sites. Same with native Americans. They're giving gratitude for what the creator gave us in the first creation, the first seven days. It's their gratitude prayers. They're not worshiping it as a deity. The, di the difficulty is when you're dealing with dualism or, or, or what they call iconography or, you know, idol worship, people need that focal point to get them to that sense of worship so of course they're going to put a, a jesus on a cross or you know a tanka painting of a deity in hinduism or whatever you know they need right. that focal point and once you get beyond needing those focal points and judaism is correct you know, you know god has no form i think islam has the same with allah they say god has no form so there's we've got these intellectual arguments going on between religions that originated from the same source. That's just one. I think one of the key things that you just said is that God has no form, and if that's true, then we have no form because we were made in that image. So people well, get it's it. Funny. Well, People get it confused. About, well, when they talk about, and you'll read in my last chapter, chapter 17, um, when they talk about this made in our image, and I note the term they use, our, plural. The, this is where the uh, knowledge of the sacred sacrament, the Amanita Muscari, which I found out from John Allegro, I was guided to his work. He was a Dead Sea Scroll scholar. He was considered blasphemous. His book was banned in the 70s, and he ended up, um, you know, um, basically having to write the material outside of intellectual circles. But it, it created a massive furor and a storm because he was a linguist and he wasn't, you know, this crazy, you know, fringe psychopath, you know, psychedelic imbiber. This guy was an intellectual. So I got his rare book and I read it and there was a few things I'm not happy with it from um, only from my own experience. But 
when that passage, and you'll note in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that they, there's a conflict because mankind was already made. And I mentioned that in my book. They were already made man and woman. Then in Genesis 2, they go into this elaborate Adam and Eve story of how, you know, a re it's actually reverse creationism where a woman is brought out of a man. And so I thought this doesn't make sense. But of course, I get a vision by this stage and I realize they're talking about the growth pattern of the Amanita the hour image ends up uh, as the ground, the intellectual structure to restructure that passage into the mushroom. The mushroom has dual gender. And this, I covered a little bit in my book about this, about the stem with the skirt, um, with the veil, the broken veil on the Amanita, that specific mushroom was or is the sacrament. And, and, and so they've got the female at the bottom, and they've got the dome, which is male on top. So there you've got our image. Now, God's not a mushroom, of course. God's not a mushroom. But the closest we can come to uh, as we climb or ascend, ascend through our consciousness, we do have these subtle conundrums or archetypes. And once you understand these in terms of passive and active or feminine and masculine, you can then decipher um, these stories, these allegorical stories on the subtlest aspect of consciousness. And I'll explain. So Eve is enticed by the serpent to eat the fruit. It's not an apple because they don't mention an apple. The fruit are the fruit on the tree of life. So the serpent is the lower ego. So Eve, even the word Eve is not, we assume it's a female, yes. But Eve or just V is vor, the feminine, passive, aspect in the tetragrammaton in, in God's name, yod heh vor -heh. So the vav or yod heh vav -heh. Uh, So the vav or the, or the feminine is seduced. And this is where choice is. You have choice. Hey, you know, do that negative event. No, no, I don't want to do that because that's the tree. If I touch that negative event, I start to descend down through the spheres of consciousness and I fall into time and I fall below the veil. So they even term these terms, the veil, it's on the mushroom stem. So once you fall below the mushroom stem, you are trapped in time. And this is all connected with Kabbalah. You've got, um, you've got the planetary correspondences and you have to understand the role of Saturn and the planets in each role in all of these ancient rituals. And they were well known, Kevin. This, is, this was a hard science. They were well known. Yeah. And so we don't have equivalency in modern psychology and this is what i struggled with so this is what we struggle with when we try to find the, the the equivalency in modern science to some of these higher metaphysical states right and i i really struggle with that you know delivery i'll be honest and so this is why we can only go by oral and talking and telling people they do exist but they may not exist for you the same way as they will for me that makes right. sense right right have you gotten, you said you've had visions through the years, but have you yeah. ever gotten back to Tem, the, the light God? I'll, I'll give you a, a secret here, uh, something that I've realized. I can only speak from my own subjective opinion. Um, once you make that connection on that vibration, it's never severed. You're not permanently talking to it, but you know, you get this, residual echo, you know, you get these feed, oh, what's the word? It's like a leader and I get anxious and then I get hit with, it might be a voice vision. 
and I go, oh, and I think here it comes. And I get very anxious and then boom. And so I write it down. And I know it's not going to be the only one because my mind is still quite fragile in receiving this information. I might get four visions over a period of two months and they all overlap again, like a holograph regarding events that are going to happen on the planet. So yes, I still get these. It doesn't say I am Tem like it did in the initial contact. Um, but I know it's, I know it is that energy because I'm permanently connected to that vibration. Once you attain a vibration, you can't not disconnect. You recognize it. It's like a law of recognition, hmm. if that makes sense. It's like your mother. You know your mum's on the phone. You don't see her face, but you recognize other attributes of, you know, her voice. And even if her voice has got a cold, you still recognize something deeper, like an energy underneath that. That's my, I know it's my mum, even though it doesn't sound like mum and I can't see her. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And I, I had a gentleman on this podcast named Ken Fresky, maybe 20 episodes ago. And he also had an experience and these visions and voice visions that he got, yeah. yes. actually he ended up writing his book through that. Right. So his book isn't even his words. Correct. And this, this is a really good point. And I, I'd stress that, that it's not about me as John. John really doesn't exist. On an absolute level, Kevin doesn't exist. Right. This is just this uh, envelope that we've chosen, the color of our skin, uh, where we've chosen to be born, New York, Sydney. I mean, all of that, all of those factors, uh, and it's just, that's just a few small ones, but the variables, you've got karma, you've got gender, you've got race, beliefs, conditions all of these things come in and you can't your mind or my mind could not fathom the variables to say to make to make an active choice i, I want to choose that incarnation because we'd all want to be rich and swan around on a yacht with a couple of lovely girls and have daiquiris and swim in aqua water for the rest of our life and mm. not have to work another day right you know the fact that you got you know you became a doctor you know for me i was military and then i just surfed and did my thing and it was an artist so we must have preached we pre-choose it but we're not always cognitive of those, of those pre-choices there's a famous book called a course in miracles i've and, heard of it yeah i have heard of it and that book was supposedly written the same way the woman was receiving yes. voice messages from who she claims was jesus christ himself so correct so yeah. look, I, I, just to, do you have any beliefs, like religious beliefs yourself? I mean, I know that's a personal question. No, I got rid of my beliefs. Oh, okay. So were you brought up religious? Was that I was, I was brought up half Jewish, half Christian, if that makes sense. Like split yes, family. It does. You have to get back to the metaphysical structure of who we are. And this body was called that's a right. guff. That's right. right? And so you, you were actually born into a hollow vessel. And I've read the book of um, Zohar and the book of Spheres and you know, all of that. And they explain it brilliantly. So here you've got a perfect book discussing yeah. about the very thing I've experienced, right? Yeah, the Zohar is fantastic. Zohar is fantastic. It is. It's a great book. I've got three, the three-volume version. And I'd suggest to any reader, my God, if you want to know about near-death experiences, go and check the Zohar out. So, yeah. So I'm, I was struggling with big concepts like Zimzum and things like this. And, you know, Zimzum is the contraction. And, and you know, they've got these certain rabbis, you know, 600, maybe 1,600 years ago who used to debate this stuff. And, you know, there's a few guys like the Goa and a few, a few big names. 
I would really love to talk to some of these rabbis who are really out there. Oh, uh, yeah. If we could, you know, because they got some brilliant bloody insights, you know. No, I, I hear you. I just, I was just studying the Kabbalah just a few weeks ago. I mean, it's just, right. it's just amazing stuff. And it, it, for me, obviously my heritage, some of my heritage goes in that direction. So yes, yes. It, it's pretty cool, but I, I'm more of a, I'm more into uh, the Buddhist side, but I. Well, you'll find that Kabbalah and Buddhism are very similar. Oh yeah. Structure. The Shekhinah. Yes. Right? The, the feminine. You know, yeah. Yeah. You, you, and, and, you know, emptiness, the, the, yes. the, the concept when of emptiness. Are, yeah. And uh, also another I, another that I've studied that I love is Meister Eckhart on the Christian side. Yes, 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 yes. So for I me, mean, for me, yeah. John, you know, I grew up, like I said, in a forced religious structure. Yes. Um, but by the time I was 18, I got rid of it. I, of denounced, I denounced it. I went full agnostic. And I was studying the Anunnaki and I was into the, all the, I was into, <laughs> yeah. I was into the, the aliens created us stuff. And then, you know, in 2011, I had an experience. I had, I guess what you would call a Satori in Zen. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't as deep as yours. It was just a, just a feeling of, I am not my body. I am not my right, mind. Right. And yes. I, in a, a deep inner peace came over me for hours then it went away and well, that's, that's the thing is they're not permanent and this because we we can't retain that permanency but right right just like you it's that experience that turned yes. me into a seeker yes yes so our, and our i story, believe that that yeah that's divine intervention it doesn't matter what level it is because it's really not a competition right because we're only given what we can handle and my God, I, I wasn't ready for this. So, but obviously I was. So it's like, and I thought, why me? You know, far out. Why? Why? I don't know anything. Oh my God! You know. And then, and then six months, <laughs> maybe six months after my satori, I met a mystic. Oh wow! So the synchronicity, they guided you. See, there comes the guidance. Yeah. So that and, that affirms your experience as being valid. And the interesting thing is, you know, you mentioned mystics earlier in our conversation. Yes. My, the mystic I met became my mentor for seven years. This is very common. Yeah. He did not give detail. He could have had the same experience as you for all I know, but he did not divulge well, anything. He was, I know the purpose. I think, I think it's only in my opinion, but I think, and I, yesterday someone mentioned a very close friend of mine who had a stroke recently. Hmm. And I spoke to a young lad in England and he said the same thing. He said, oh, look, you know, this John, his name's John. He said, John won't, John won't give you the answer. I said, exactly. He said, because your mind is in a passive state. What he's trying to do is he's trying to put your mind into an active state by using rhetorical questions on your posit. So if you ask a question to the mystic, the mystic will come back with a rhetorical to force you to think for yourself. Right. But you're on the ascent to the I am. This is the classic uh, Moses, Moshe, you know, who sent you? I am. So if we can expand on that, that concept of what the I am is, you know, and you need a lot of metaphysical background here on the structure of mind. So it wasn't just anybody can be I am. Um, he could have been saying I am human right. or I am uh, I've reached the I am of who I really am, the divine nature of, of you know, my structure of my soul. 
So these are very deep conversations that I think all mystics get to that point of I am. But, you know, of course, Moshe in his particular role, much like Yeshua, um, they have a particular role where, I mean, Moses was a reluctant Messiah. Jesus, I don't know if he was reluctant. He knew who he was. So, but, so you've got to link, well, who are these? And I, and I found out that most of these are titles. They're, they're just titles for people who can wake up. So anyone can be a Yeshua. Anyone can be a Moshe. Anyone can be a Buddha. And Correct. That, Correct. Was, that was one of the things that attracted me to yes. Gautama the Buddha is that yes. his teaching was you can be me. Correct. So he actually, what he's doing is he's actualizing your potential through the Bodhisattva path, right? Yep. With, the, with the fruition of Bodhisattva actions. You know, eventually, if you can reach that that expanded full Buddha nature, you know whether or not he's had um, nirvana or para nirvana, you know whatever you get into these really you know out there levels of enlightenment, mm-hmm. which are fascinating, and they do like a satori. There are equivalencies. And Japan it actually is a Buddhist na- was a Buddhist nation. I yeah. saw one of my past lives. I was a Shinto priest, but I was killed bringing Buddhism into Japan around 1200 AD. So, and then I had another lifetime there where I actually fulfilled my Shinto priest role. So hmm. I'm thinking, okay, you know, I loved Japan. I liked the, they had a lot of animism connected to it and a lot of earth, you know, energies and, you know, everything was very nature oriented. Japan's a mystery. They've got it, but they've got a lot of Buddhist philosophy. And when you look it's, at the structure of their symbolism, it's all there. It's the Zen know? capital of the world. Zen capital of the world. Yeah. Is it safe to say that you're absolutely not scared of death because you know the cycle? It's, it's like it doesn't even enter my mind. And when you don't have that fear of death, illness can't creep in because a lot of illness is triggered by stress and fear. Mm. And wherever that fear and stress goes in your body as a form of energy, and all of a sudden it goes to the weakest point. So if you've got a weakness in your lungs or your liver or an internal organ, you, I don't know, you're a doctor, right? By trade? PhD in nutrition. Nutrition. Okay. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about is the, uh, the interface between plant medicine, which yep. is all plants, and our uh, massive evolutionary biology. And so this is where I have good conversations with this molecular biologist, this professor of molecular biology, uh, Beric. I mentioned him in my dedication. Beric was working on cancer. I mean, he was at Cambridge. He had an institute. He put many PhDs through. He's well known. I won't talk about him whilst he's not here. But uh, in context, Beric's got a wealth of knowledge about, you know, the minuscule structure of our biology. And, and it's, wow, I mean, it's over my head. It is so damned complex. It's a whole universe in there. So, you know, when he starts talking about the movement of proteins, you know, moving in and out of cell structures and, you know, they'd have to formulate experiments to do this. This is a world that's so far removed from the average populace. Mm-hmm. To me, hats off. I mean, you know, and, and molecular biology is a very new field. My muscle is, what, 20 years old, 25, 30 years old. Right. And it's really exploded in the last three decades. But even nutrition i mean this is interesting because once you start to get into kabbalah comes into this in some they've got a a treatise on macrocosm microcosm they talk about 
the tree of life on an individual level, studying your own tree of life. Right. You've got the, the macroposimus or whatever they call it. Uh, then they see the tree of lives in the gestalt or the archetype. So you try to see where all the tree of lives are going. This is like the bigger picture. These envelopes happen in biology as well, like, and even physics. Atom, you've got your threefold principle of neutron, electron, proton. But then it repeats in a bigger, in a bigger format. And once you start to recognise that repeat, in bigger cycles and smaller cycles, you think, hang on, these are these these are very, very uh, informative patterns. Now, why I'm talking about that is food. We, we are made of food. Our biology through billions of years, we are made of rocks. We're made of plant material. All of these things are solidified. So this is all just, you know, on a denser scale. Cosmos cosmos dust you know you name it you think my god i mean and you know as you know with biology the complexity of the systems in our body is phenomenal oh yeah i mean your your liver alone does <gasps> over 400 functions isn't that phenomenal and yet yeah. even that's known in kabbalah they mention the liver it's actually mentioned as one of the organs mm -hmm. and 400 is a sacred number as well you've got 400 worlds in kabbalah so whether or not there's a link there numerologically, I don't know. I mean, a lot of mystics might know more about this than I, you know? Yeah, it's all, it's all linked. It's all, you know, like, like Santos calls it, you know, syncretism. Yeah, syncretism. So with Santos's work, you know, he talks about, I think he focuses quite heavily. I don't think it was his original work, but he focuses heavily on uh, the epochs um, involved with the covenants, like you've got the Abrahamic covenant, uh, you've got the um, uh, the covenant that come after, which was, well, that was in the Abraham, was in the Ram, I think it was. Uh, then you've got Taurus, which was the Shofar horn. When, with the Jewish, they have the Shofar horn, so a lot of um, bull symbolism. Yeah. Christianity, you've got a lot of fish symbolism, so you get into the Zodiac of Pisces. Uh, you know, and then we move into Aquarius. So with procession, you're moving backwards through the eons. So in each book in the Bible, you've got these epochs or seven major cycles even the adamic original adamic which this is where we start to get into who the tem was going scrolling right back to who this name tem and i found out it was artem it was an egyptian god i didn't know that at the time during my experience but i was shown a lot of egyptian stuff mm. so I'm thinking well who's this artem so i look it up and you know it's all connected with uh, an egyptian deity right so you know what i'm saying so it's like we've got millions of deities but I'm getting off track. I'm, I'm ranting a bit. I feel like sometimes I feel like I know too much and you know, you know, a lot. Santos knows a lot. A lot of people know a lot, but isn't it safe to say that really, you know, we probably should just be quiet and calm and go inside of ourselves. Well, ultimately, it, yes. Yeah. Ultimately, yes. But, yeah. you know, what happens is there seems to be, uh, we're not in control. I mean, this gets into choice versus free destiny. Okay, mm -hmm. that's a big one, philosophical. Do we have choice or is it all predestined through prophecy and it's all seen? Well, yes and no. Um, well, I get these visions on what's the point of getting them if I can't affect any change to prevent a negative, for example. So we have a choice to act on the information that we get. 
So my choice was to write a book and get it out into the public. Whereas before I wasn't interested in writing a book. So yes, we have a choice. And that choice ultimately is to share this information in there that might be beyond my comprehension where other people pick up and say, oh, that guy's hit a really interesting chunk or jigsaw piece here. And other people can expand on that. And that's the whole idea of sharing. Yeah. Is other no. people can, we can bounce off other people. I'm not charging, you know, the world or it's not, you know what I'm saying? Right. No, share is a, it's a very important. It's word. extremely important. Yeah. Sharing Podcasts, is caring. I mean, I was talking last night about the oral tradition that whilst we're all stuck in this, you know, digital age and we're all, you know, talking through internet and YouTube and these hubs that are slowly being centralized and, you know, algorithms are pushing certain information to the bottom, bringing other information to the top. Having a podcast talking like this ultimately is the Jesus covenant. Any two people in my name. Well, let's forget about the name aspect. But once you start sharing orally, communicating wisdom stories that I've experienced, I'm just offering you my experience. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. You offered me your Satoria experience. You're not stating it's right or wrong, but I find a commonality. Right. So there's, there's a, a double positive there, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Listeners will listen to that and go, hey, I've had something like that, triple, quadruple. So it's an expanding experience. You're expanding your oral tradition through open communication. I have nothing to hide and nothing to fear. Mm. I cannot fear death because there is no death. So therefore, my role is to share as much insight as possible whilst I'm in the, the guff in the vessel. And that frees me up from the prison of time. Because if this information transcends time and it goes beyond my mortality, it is, it is performed the function that it was meant to do. That's what classics are about. This is why people like Plato, like Aristotle. I mean, this is what great minds do. They travel through time. So we use them as a, as a benchmark. You know, this is how we grow. Empirical data, this is how we grow. Mm. Yes, we're in a difficult time because there might be ideologies that conflict. That little iron out, God will sort that out. As you said, we go quiet. Sometimes we have to go quiet. I think we have free will. I think that yes. I think the Adam and Eve story is very, very, very powerful. I think Absolutely. it is Absolutely. metaphorically on point. Yes. That reptile, that snake, could be looked at as society socially engineering us and trying to get us to go left when we really need to go right. Are we active participants in it, though? How are we inputting into, and I, and I would urge you to watch Dune Messiah coming out by Denis Villeneuve, which is a classic rewrite of, of um, uh, the book by Frank Herbert, Dune. I mean, the original was done by um, Ridley Scott. Okay. That's a shamanic film. The worm, this, the giant worm, sandworms on Arrakis or Arrakeen, um, they, they're your kundalini. That's your leviathan. You see, mm. Leviathan's mentioned in Kabbalah as this giant serpent and it weaves and takes a whole generation to swerve from left to right. That's mentioning, this is, this is in Malkuth, you know, in your, in your lower sphere in Kabbalah. This is where the most of majority of consciousness is, is stuck in the beta Malkuth consciousness of Leviathan. So when you have, you know, Paul, who's the messianic figure, he has to ride that worm. They're saying he's like the shaman who has to come up on the front of that wave for the next generation. 
but each generation has their worm rider, you know, and, and you might have a couple of them. And they're out in the wilderness, you know, classic John the Baptist, yeah. classic Moses, classic Yeshua, all went out into the wilderness. And that mythology, as you said, coming through Adam and Eve is part of our mythology of choice versus predestiny. And this is where the doctrine of Gilgal, its Kabbalistic doctrine of reincarnation through Tikkun, the rest of uh, the rectification, uh, can only come through multiple rebirths, multiple reincarnations. This is taught in Judaism, in esoteric Judaism, by the way. And yeah. I mentioned this in my book that Gilgal somehow separated from Christianity and they don't have reincarnation in Christianity when it should because Judaism has it. I'm not saying all Judaism has it. Just Kabbalah. Kabbalah, that's right. This esoteric. And I like the esoteric stuff because esoteric was oral tradition. You only got those insights by master-student relationship. Mm-hmm. So we need more people talking. So have you got any Jewish rabbis out there? Um, hey, guys, get in there and start to share this stuff. Get yeah. up on podcasts and talk with Kevin here because this is important stuff that Christians need to know to see where the roots of their religion came from, you know? And they could they could learn a few things from like Meister Eckhart, Meister Eckhart but a lot of the saints too. Uh, yes, yes. Augustine oh. and Paul. Yes. Yes, they all made these realizations, right? They made these realizations. The kingdom of heaven is in us. It's in us all the time. And how about, this, is my, this might be the thing that stood out to me the most. In the Sermon on the Mount, yeah. Yeshua says the secret place. He's talking about it in the context of prayer. Yes. He's, go to the secret place. The secret place. The secret place is what you're talking about. This is... This is being able to go inside and, and see. Yes. See, all those mansions are inside you. They're not external. They're not, and, and the other thing, too, is that the Vatican, 1,600 years ago, through the Council of Nicaea, the twin council, the two councils, they externalized everything into a post-death state. Now, if you study Kabbalah, you know that there's uh, two main deaths. There's a lower death of the male ego, then there's a higher death of the female intuitive, and not much is known. It's called the second death. Uh, I don't know what they call it in Judaism. Um, they would have a specific name for it. But once you understand that part, we understand that the second death, and both those deaths, mind you, the first death is by baptism. You take a path uh, you know, to study, whether it be Meister Eckhart, Eckhart, or whatever, you're taking a spiritual path. So these, this primary death is the death of your ego right. to get into that active principle of choice to search for your own light. And see, most of the church system is stuck in a passive role of being told what to think rather than question and debate. Buddhism, they question and debate. They fight it out. You know, they slap at each other and they slap their hands and they have really vociferous debates. Right. And they tear down arguments. This has to be done for any sort of, uh, you know, cognitive logic and narrative to actually come and get the essence. You've got to make the mind work. It's a muscle and you've got to make that thing work. Mm. It's very important. And just when you get to an epiphany, don't think that's it. And so this is why when you reach that, really these great states of Satori or insights, if you want to springboard and grow, you've got to go back. And quantum physics is real here. You go back to that point event, you feel it in your meditation, you go back to it, you expand on it, and you take yourself back to that time because there is no time so what you're doing is you're linking up to your own experience of that, that epiphany. So Kevin here 
and Kevin back there 10 years later or 10 years before, you link back to the experience and it empowers your energetic field or your subtle body system again. And that way you can lift by recreating the experiment. It's an experiment in science. Yeah. And if you get the same similar epiphany, then you're on the road to enlightenment. Aha, aha. aha. Here's your aha moment. So there's no time. And this is the illusion is we're stuck in time. This is what happened from the fall. When we ate from the fruit, Eve, the feminine passive receptive on chokma, chokma, I think they call it on the, on the pillar of mildness. She's up there in Atsalu. Ketha, chokma, bina, bina, chokma, feminine, passive, bina, masculine, active. So here she gets the serpent enticing her and says, hey, eat the, eat the fruit down here. It's plenty of fruit on the lower branches. No, 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 but God says don't eat that fruit. No, no, but come on. You'll, your eyes will be opened. And you'll see like the gods, you know. So, of course, she does. She eats the fruit. And the very next thing is she offers it to Adam. So what they've done is the scribes have, have, have um, genderized it as a male and a female. Now, these are archetypes in everyone's mind. It's not a male-female thing. It's because people don't understand the archetypal attributes of, of the higher spheres and the, and the twin pillars. And so when Adam and Eve both fall out of the supernal triad, which is the three upper fruit on the, on the tree of life, they fall down past the veil and they fall into time below Saturn. Saturn is attributed to Beria, the second world. You know, So we fall into time. That's what happened. We fell into time. I mentioned that in my book, Kevin, that the punishment or the original term of hell, El is Hare, the god of endlessness and infinity, Egyptian god, and El is Saturn. So you fell into time. So all of the brutal rites of, of uh, uh, circumcision and uh, all of these brutal rites were designed to push your consciousness up out of time to get into this expansive mansion, you know, of, of, the, uh, of Atsalu. It's a great That's term. That's where the Garden of Eden is. That's, That's where the term. Garden of Eden is. Expansion mansion. I love that right. term. Expansion mansion. And so it's like once you have the expansion mansion i mean you can patent that if you like i like it too so once you have that expansion mansion you, you're already you're opening up and you're getting out of time you're actually levitating and transcending you are ascending and we've heard the new age oh we're going to be raptured by the church or ascend it's all the same language you're lifting up you're being lifted lifted up and that fulfills scripture to a t hmm. through the marriage theology you know where yeah. the Messiah, Messiah comes back and there's this merging and this merging or this marriage, you know, of virginal consciousness marriages with, you know, with concepts of archetype. It's all the same in Buddhism. Yeah, you know, it really is. Hinduism, <laughs> Judaism, Christianity, it's all there. But the problem is we're fighting over the semantic. I, yes. want, your sh I want your short answer on this. Okay. Do you think there will be a reemergence of extraterrestrials? Will they come back around? It has to be. Yeah. Absolutely. Because we haven't fully evolved. We're just now coming out of the teenage, violent teenage state. We're running rampant, destroying each other. We're in lockdown. Right. We don't know how to treat each other. We've been given divine laws from very advanced species. These divine laws work with us on a metaphysical level that we've had for eons since the beginning. That's what we're trying to do is we're trying to find our 
our grown-up self, our oh, wisdom minds. We, us, and the ETs, we're all under the same, still under the same source, same God. We, we are. We are under the same source. So I have no doubt they're here to help us. There's stories of ETs trying to trap us and destroy us. They look, listen, these things, they can travel freaking light years in an instant. They have powers, you know, uh, that could destroy this planet in seconds if they need be, I'm sure. But they're still under the law, the cosmological law of the one. So they might be able to have, they might be a million years advanced technologically, but spiritually, um, you know, they're, they're there and they're trying to help us. They're trying to help us get ourselves out of this mess. And right. we are like naughty kids with an atomic bombs and we're doing stupid stuff and we're trashing the very nest that we need for survival. Mm. They've come to help and they intervened. So we've had a 30 year soft intervention. That's in my opinion only. That's what my book is partially about. I mentioned that we were created by them. So they've got a vested interest to unblock, unblock this blockage that we've got down here on so many levels, this toxicity. Mm. So they, they, don't want to, they don't want to usurp our choice, Kevin. And this is a really interesting thing. We have to want to choose to evolve. Now, if we choose to evolve on a personal level, We'll die and we'll reincarnate when the greater evolution, the collective evolution reaches that point where we can reincarnate again and keep moving forward. Right. That's what the rectification or Tikkun through Gilgul is all about, getting back to it. And it won't be the same Eden that we left. It can't possibly be the same Eden. We'll be a very aged Adam and a very old Eve sitting in a rocking chair going, damn, did we stuff that up? It only took us like, you know, 400,000 years to stuff it. Hmm. And then, you know what I mean? That's when we'll do nothing. We'll just sit back in the rocking chair and say, well, let's not touch it for a while and just let God do its work. Right. Let the plants grow. Let everything go back to organic structures again. No pesticides, all of that. Right. It's important. And I think the ETs were helping us the best way they could without causing a panic. Because if they, can you imagine if they had intervened physically with ships everywhere, people would have committed suicide. Karmic, negative karmic imprint there. Yeah, I'll sit. I'll just do what I'm always doing. I've just been me, and I live in the moment. Uh, I paint. I'm an artist. Uh, sales are crap. It'd be nice if I sold a bit more. Um, but we'll see. I, I trust in spirit that I trust it that much in spirit that I'm right where I'm meant to be at any given time. It's right. all the power is right here now in this podcast. It's like nothing else exists but this podcast. You and me talking and just rapping about Mike Tyson on his bloody. <laughs> toad poison and you know <laughs> that's right i mean that's just if geez, i hope mike listens to this podcast i think this is hilarious but but man i mean you know it's like to me anybody yourself anybody has these amazing amazing epiphanies they're yes. worth talking about because this is about becoming naked again so we're in the garden of eden metaphorically right now yes Sharing, there's no, I'm, you're not Jewish, Christian, whatever. I'm not Jewish, Christian. I'm just John and I'm just this dude who's had this experience. And I'm happy I've had it. Yeah. Jesus, when I had it, it really screwed my relationships up and friendships. It did it ever. Mad Johnny, you know, he's, he's seen extraterrestrials and it just went on. I mean, I, I, had, a, I had contact as well. And that's, that'd be good for another podcast. I'd go into great in-depth about those contacts. 
physically been on a ship. Yeah, yeah. So listeners are listening. You're a 10-hour podcast, John. <laughs> Damn, I mean... <laughs> but it's important because it's a humbling experience. It's like I'm exposing myself and becoming naked to being powerless. You know, a, I don't have any power. These events it's make a sur- powerless. Sur- surrender. Correct. That's it's a the, surrender. Yeah, that's the term right there. Surrender. And there's this, there's this bigger river going on, and you've got to surrender to that river because if you don't, hey, you're like, you get the, smashed. The most important song of all time. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. <laughs> merrily, 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 yeah. merrily. Life is but, but a dream. Correct. There it is so, right there. So the natives sing about a canoe in that respect. Row, row, row your canoe. But it's like, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, the true canoe. I mean, we collectively have the answer because collectively we're connected to deity. So yeah, we're all the, we're all the same. We're all it, part of the whole. As it all, it'll unfold whether it's via choice or whether it's predestined. We choose to either love God and love each other now or later. That's the only choice. I that's the conclusion I came up to in the end. I can choose to love one another now or later. And there's your two missing mitzvahs to any rabbis who are actually listening to this. They have 113 mitzvahs. There's originally 111, but they've pinched two of the mitzvahs from the Mosaic Law. Well, which two do you pick? Number one and two, or two and five, or three and nine? Or No, the two mitzvahs are in Matthew 22, 37, 39. And a famous Jewish rabbi called Yeshua came up and said, love God, love your neighbor. They're the two missing mitzvahs. So it merges the Old and New Testament. This is going to be hard to handle. Hmm. It's going to be hard to handle because it's a covenant shift. It's a covenant merge and shift level. And for the listeners that don't know, Yeshua is Jesus the Christ. Yes. yes. But even the term Yeshua, yeah, Ush, or Shu is the god of wind in ancient Egypt. The Y or the letter Y is Yud. Yeshua is, is moon goddess. You get back to Shekinah again. So all of these broken syllables are mm. ancient egyptian syllables and there's a good i'll promote one book here one kabbalist her name's leonora leet phd i'd recommend getting some of her work i'm, I'm plowing through her books they're very heavy she links all the ancient uh, aramaic texts and hindu hindu um, hindu language to judaism so there's she's linking common words in a lot of the deities like ish you know ishtar you know Unipishtim was Sumerian god. So this Ish goes back to Ush, which is a, um, an Egyptian god. So th- this is another a completely other tangent. It's a very long um, philological, etymological link. This is the stuff I've been digging into. Right. So, but, you know. Well, I don't think I've ever met anyone that would enjoy the tiger's fang as much as you, John. <laughs> I'm going to write that down, the tiger's fang. Yeah, it's a, it's a spe- special book. Amazing. I mean, I will look it up. And um, like I said, I, I, for any of the listeners, my book, God's Mountain. Um, yes. Which uh, is an interesting, it took me eight years to put together. I didn't, as I wow. said, I'm not an author, but it was 30 years experience, or 27 years of reclusive experience. And it wasn't until 2012 that I decided to write the book because I'd done some uh, interviews with a Dr. Evie Richardson on Caribbean radio, which is still out there on the net. You can still search John Scott MBE. So I thought it was just going to be an 18-month task. Was I so wrong, man? I ended up spending eight years on that thing. I felt far out. 
so hats off to anyone who can write a book. It's hard work. Yeah. Um, getting okay. threads together. It's a really, it's a different, it was a real challenge for me. I've written five. <laughs> wow. Okay. And uh, more to come. Yes. It, it it comes easy to me for some reason, but you know, I don't know. I think to... some people are gifted. Some people are gifted writers. They really are. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's if I was able to get that PhD, I mean, you could do anything. <laughs> well, I've heard any PhD hats off to them. It's hard. I mean, you've got to really, yeah. really yeah. do the hard yards. Yeah. There's mo- like... there's, there's moments where you want to slam your head against the wall, you know? I bet. I bet. I bet. Because I know a few PhDs, and I'll tell you what, they're very quiet. I don't know if they're burnt out. <laughs> I don't know if they're burnt out from so much intellectual ramming and, and you know, churning it out. Because it's memorization. It's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. Not, it's not wisdom. That's interesting. Now, That's the, interesting. the story you said about your stories and, and, and that's wisdom because it's your experience. Correct. And I think that's kind of interesting that I was put into that experience. So I'm not talking through my hat from, and quoting someone else. I've read other people. In fact, I haven't read any NDEs except Evan Alexander's and I've seen a couple on YouTube. I'm not interested in them because I know mine was the most powerful. But then, excuse me, but then when I see the commonalities, and ultimately it's love. Ultimately, there's no barriers or boundaries. And ultimately, they're saying similar things. You know, when you look for the commonality or the structure, the commonality of the experience any experience that's trying to split us up or divide us is not really that's the only one i shy away from i don't judge it i just shy away from it because it's it's exclusive not inclusive right and it's not about losing your identity to someone else's religion no it's about actually accepting that their religion might actually be right it's just written in a semantic structure for a basic primate you know we are primates we communicate with oral you know vocal these entities communicate direct mind to mind, which is going to be a more advanced approach for communication. Telepathy, in my view, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's much more open. Speaking of, the, speaking of the religions, I mean, look, Lao Tzu called it the way. Buddha Lao called Tzu. it the way. Yes. Jesus called it the way. Yes. It's just the yeah. way. It's the way. It's a pathway. Yeah. In Buddhism, they call it a yana, you know, it's a yana, it's a river. I mean, Native Americans, they have the Wakantanka and Tunkashla, that is their way, connecting through the grandfathers. Yeah. Indigenous Aboriginals here, same thing, they have family lineage. Right. So it's like, this is Maori, Maori in New Zealand, same again. So I'm looking for the disconnect. Where have we disconnected from the spirit world? That's what I'm looking at. And how do we reconnect? to our own experience as the reconnect. Mm-hmm. Anybody tries to disconnect you from your own spiritual Gnostic experience, get rid of them out of your life. You've got to connect to your own dreams, your own synchronicities, your own Satori, your own out of body, your own NDE. It's yours. You came in alone. You're going to die alone. And anything that happens in between is for you. The fear of fear is the, you know, the only thing to worry about. You get beyond that. It's, I think it's fantastic when it's dark because that's where the real potential is. Well, that's when we really see, right? Because yeah. we, can't, we can't see the stars during the day. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. Where have and, they gone? Where have they gone? <laughs> and Santos brought this up on our podcast. He said black 
lack. Take the B away. It's lack. lack. Oh, there you go. Yeah, lack, lack of light. It's, it's lack. So it's the black light you want to go towards. And you yes. said it in your story that you went into the black void. That was that void. That was the scariest part. But once you get past that, now, for any listeners out there, if people are worried about, you know, I haven't had an NDE and I'll never, don't worry, we're all going through one now. Hmm. What, ha- what happens to the individual mystic or whatever, and I don't call myself a mystic by any means, but what happened to me, I can see it unfolding out there now. We're heading into darkness. We're going into the void as a collective, right? So yeah. internal, external, upper, lower, it's all of these planes of existence will all coalesce into a singularity. And this is what this event is or this thing we're all worried about. Don't be worried. Be like a child and just open your heart up. You won't be hurt if you're being honest and you keep it real, you know? The guru that that I, that's my advisor, if you will, my, what was the word you used? Um, Guidance counselor, if we're using the school analogy. Supervisor, yeah. He says that enlightenment is essentially a black hole just like in space just like the Absolutely. scientists discovered in space yes it's going through a black hole yes. and you you're imploding you're imploding you're losing all your mass and you're losing the sense of self which is classic newtonian physics mm. you, know, you have to dump the mass until eventually what are you left with a photon which is your soul and a photon's meant to be massless and that's the only thing that can pass through a black hole right well supposedly this is the big question. What happens to photons when they enter black holes? We don't know because they go past the singularity, past the point of end of being able to observe it. So they can only see peripheral activity. I mean, just recently, and I mentioned this in my book, uh, the, 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 the um, black hole that they took a photo of, NASA M87 in constellation of Virgo, um, it was a big fiery ring. It was a portal to another world. And I show how Ahura Mazda, you know, was in the, the little portal and the rings is all in my book visually. So here we are, you know, we, we are a light body and we're all going to have to go through a black hole. And of course, this is a bit scary because people, once you hit fear, people's animal nature reacts in a way that is, you know, they get scared, they lash out, they get violent, they do stupid things. So it's the one who can step back, watch the watcher and not just, just be and connect with your intuition because that's all you're going to have. Because we're going once we hit that void, there's going to be a lot of like, what happens next? No, you know, we always look to gurus to move generations forward. When we run out of those gurus and it's completely black, and I think from memory, this is one of the plagues in the Bible, is the days of darkness. You know, um, we this, need, we need they're talking gurus. about spiritual darkness. When you have spiritual darkness, look out. That's more scary than any bloody coronavirus in China, spiritual darkness is frightening because you're, you're rudderless, you're anchorless. You don't know where you are. And when that, that's really, and you only have you as your point of reference. I'm talking about you as in 7 billion people out there. People, that's all they have. They have their beliefs. They have their point of reference of I or me. But when that gets destroyed through this burning off of passing through these portals, we'll see how you feel then. It's not, not a, I'm not sort of getting all, you know, lightning bolts here, but if you don't have a sense of who you are uh, spiritually, then it can be quite problematic. And it doesn't matter how intellectual, how well-educated or what status we have, we all have the same deep 
innate need to be loved. Yeah, that's what ultimately what we want. So we're searching for that absolute. Everybody on an unconscious level is looking for it. That's what I realized when I came out of my ND. I thought I was looking for it all my life. I was looking for that and it happened. I was lost, dark. And finally the light came and dragged me out and showed me. I think that's, uh, we've wrapped it up. Yeah, that's it, John. This is one, uh, this might be my longest. I'll definitely have some editing to do, but it's all worth it. Awesome. (laughs) John, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope I haven't disappointed. No, not at all. For all the listeners, be sure to go on Amazon and get John Scott's book called God's Mountain and find him on Facebook and go say hi. If you're looking for my work, you can go to drreese.com. That's doctor spelled out. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.